real serious right now. We got a circle of wagons. They taking our women, taking our lives, taking our motherfucking jobs. It ain't no joke, man. We gotta strengthen our shit, man. New rules, new rules. For all my people, we the ask for journalists. Welcome to a guest in the house podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mickey Hess, and I'm here with my man Trom Diggs D Shanks, aka David Shanks. Absolutely, man. Another uh, beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, we have a guest in the house this week. For a guest in the house. For a guest in the house. Awesome. Um, I stumbled um, onto this individual's work while, um, you know, I took on my 30 squat challenge earlier um, in the year. <laughs> so I was up eight o'clock in the morning doing some, uh, doing my hundred squats and I needed some background uh, material and I stumbled on this Jay Prince interview mm-hmm. and you know how I feel about Jay Prince. So um, yeah, that led me down a rabbit hole of, um, checking out this um brother's work through his uh unique access and then that led me back to the the journalism aspect in terms of written journalism so we're here with um soren baker soren baker is a um veteran journalist um covering music and hip-hop um his latest book the history of gangster rap um, I'm really enjoying the audible. <laughs> um, so yeah, we have, uh, we have, um, Soren Baker with us in the house as a guest. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on y'all. I appreciate it. Thanks man. Welcome Soren. Yeah. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm glad you guys reached out and I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, looking forward to discussing everything. Short, th- short thing. Now we'll just jump right into it and let the conversation flow. Uh, you're a timely guest um, specifically because of your um, coverage of gangster rap. Mm-hmm. So we definitely want to get into that. Um, but tell us a little bit about your um, your background. How'd you get into hip hop and how'd you get into journalism and just, you know, kind of your mission? Yeah, well, I was born and raised in Maryland, uh, right in between Baltimore and D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was 10 years old, one of my friends, uh, I was talking to him and his name is Thomas Erdely. And I was just talking to him about rap, and I'd heard a couple songs, of course, Rapper's Delight, but right. this was several years later, and I was just, I didn't know there was that much rap around, because I just asked him, I was like, oh, so what do you know about rap, and I like it, and he's like, oh man, there's a whole bunch. So I was like, yo, could you make me a tape? And then he did, and that tape changed my life, because I fell in love with it. It had uh, Dana Day Nightmares was on there, <laughs> You Talk Too Much, Run MC. It had Big Mouth Houdini. It had The Show by Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh Crew featuring yeah, MC Ricky D, a.k.a. Slick Rick. That's a good, that's a good it tape. Had, yeah, Roxanne, Roxanne by UTFO. It had Basketball, mm-hmm. Curtis Blow. So it had um, a lot of these songs that I need a beat, LL Cool J. So I was introduced right off the out the gate to not only phenomenal music, but a wide range of storytelling, a wide range of things I was interested in, like basketball, uh, you know, with Roxanne, Roxanne, I, you know, experienced what it was like having a girl kind of dish you, so I could relate to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely could relate to Big Mouth and You Talk Too Much. So unlike some of the rock music that was coming out at the time or other musics or what have you, I just 
that's what I felt like I could relate with and identify with. And then at the same time, I loved the sound of the scratching, (laughs) you know, just listening to it and Rapper's Delight and some of the other songs I had heard here and there didn't have any or a lot of scratching, but I was just so mesmerized on like Roxanne, Roxanne and Mixmaster Ice. Mixmaster Ice, yeah. And these songs, and I was like uh, blown away by it because I didn't, I loved the sound. And of course, I had no idea how it was being made because my dad was very much into music, but he never scratched any records, of course. (laughs) So I didn't, uh, I just had no idea what it was. I assumed they were scratching the records, but I didn't understand the science behind it or how it worked or how they got those sounds. And it was just mesmerizing to me. And, you know, this was also a time where I just fell in love with the music. It was just only about the music. I didn't have any other interest in it other than I thought it was phenomenal. Right. And you tell some of the story in the foreword to the history of gangster rap. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about um, being a preteen growing up in suburban Maryland and Gangster Rat made the stories I read about in the newspaper and saw in the evening news come to life in a way I didn't know was possible. Instead of right. watching or listening to some stuffy, detached, usually white male reporter recount the violence ravaging black urban America, I suddenly found myself immersed in it. Yeah. That, that holds true for me. And I, I think gonna, a lot I was of say um, that, white that fans sounds like your story. Might. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, I was growing up in Kentucky. Um, okay. I, we were talking about when we recorded an earlier podcast today, just the reactions to the L.A. riots. Um, mm-hmm. I think having listened to N.W.A. and Ice-T and Paris and some of the other stuff coming out around that time, it gave me a different perspective than I was getting from a lot of the adults where I lived. Yeah, Absolutely. Fortunately, and as you could tell from the intro of my book and then even the acknowledgments of the history of gangster rap, you know, I was fortunate that my parents are not racist and did not instill any of that in me. So I had to go outside my house or look at the newspaper or television or later listening to music to understand what that was. Uh, My neighbors were black. And I had a very diverse area where I grew up as far as racially and actually in all ways, racially, uh, socioeconomics. We had people on welfare at my school getting free lunch. And then we had people living in at the time, like almost half million dollar homes, which was crazy. So I saw, you know, people, there was one project that went to my school. So we had people on projects and then we had people that were, you know, at the top of the food chain. And I understood social difference. And then later I understood racial stuff. Um, But fortunately, my parents didn't help me (laughs) with racism other than when I started asking them questions like, oh, why, why, why is, why are things like this? Why does this person not like somebody because of how they look or their skin tone or what they believe or, and that's really where. I started understanding it. And then with my neighbors, the Joneses, you know, Mr. Jones, Ed Jones, you know, he was a, was a great man and he would, you know, help take care of me. And I would go to his house. He would come over. We went to the 4th of July together. We went to baseball games. So it wasn't like, and it wasn't like, Oh, we're going with 
our black neighbor <laughs> who was like, no, we're going with Mr. Jones to the right. game. Or mm-hmm. we would play his, uh, he and Mrs. Jones's kids were a lot older than me, but their son Eric was in the rap and he was, I don't remember exactly how old because he moved when I was young to New York, but you know, he's probably five, six years older than me. And then when you're little, that's a lot older. Yeah. Or no, he's probably, no, their, their daughter Deborah was five or six and he was older than that. So he was always somebody I talked to about rap and about New York. Um, so anyway, and then, you know, my friends, a lot of my friends uh, were black and they were also Asians that went to my school and Latinos. And so it was just, it was just a very different thing for me as I grew up later I realized where I grew up and how I grew up was not quote unquote normal right, so, right. similar to when I left but, New York and I realized oh <laughs> this just right. happens here yeah 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 right, and, right. You, and I've well I've lived in New York um Philly and now this area and so those are probably like three of the most diverse areas in the country so i don't really have any experience with the other side um yeah Yeah. it wasn't until uh i went to college in cincinnati ohio i went to xavier Ah, that's where i kind of was like whoa that was a huge culture shock to me there's no racism in Cincinnati, right? <laughs> Never heard anything about this. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah, I lived uh, 12 years in Louisville, Kentucky, but I grew up in rural Kentucky uh, between these two towns called Eubank and Science Hill. So not um, familiar with them, but a lot of my yeah. friends from Z- <laughs> a lot of my friends from Xavier were from Louisville, uh, in oh, particular yeah, yeah. my boy Matt Winkler okay. and uh, Kip Hanley. Those two in particular uh, got to shout them out. Cool. But uh, Louisville's definitely. Uh, yeah, I can tell you, you have know. friends from there because you say it right. Louisville. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, yep, been there many and times. It, and it's a hotbed right now with the Breonna Taylor murder at the hands of police. I mean, I, I was just t- saying to Dave before we started recording today that uh, when I was living there, which is about 12 or 13 years ago now, I couldn't see these mass protests happening back then. I couldn't see people getting mobilized. Mm. Um, certainly there were police killings while I lived right. there and never did they inspire this kind of response. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, I think people are more fed up than mm. ever. I don't think the anger and the resentment is new. I think that's been centuries. It's been in existence for centuries, if not longer, but now I think people are deciding that they got to really do something because we're unfortunately seemingly stuck on a repeat of, you know, a black man or person of color or even now women of color getting brutalized by the police and killed. And then we mourn it as a country collectively and everybody's like, oh, we're going to work to get better. And then fast forward, sometimes Later that day, or a day later, or a week later, we have a similar incident, and the cycle continues. Now, yep. it's, yeah. yeah, but it's you know this is unfortunately not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for yep. centuries. So, it's unfortunately it's an intrinsic part of America. Mickey brought up, um, well, absolutely. Mickey brought up uh, gangster rap, um, just kind of in him being able to get that reporting 
from um, you know the front lines, basically, even though he was in um, rural Kentucky. And you're pretty good as anyone to talk about this. Um, I'm looking at, you know, I'm just thinking about today and, and what's happening right this minute. And, you know, like the top three songs in the country or three of the top five songs in the country being like um, Doja Cat and Nicki Minaj and um, The Other Snitch and, uh, <laughs> you know, Beyonce and Megan Thee Stallion and just, you know, kind of contrasting that to like what was being given to us from the art and from the culture in 92 and in 91. Uh, just talk about that contrast. Uh, you know, you talk, um, Mickey brought up Paris well, and Cube and, you know, NWA. Well, I think, I think the reality is, is the, there's a lot of factors going on to put this in what I believe is to be the proper context for one in the, 80s and early 90s in particular, there was far less rap that got released, especially on a level to where it was nationally distributed. So right there, we have a very limited scope of make up a number, a hundred artists back then, and now we have a thousand artists. And that that's because of the advancements and evolution of technology. Right. So the difference is if you gravitated toward political rap or conscious rap or reality rap or street reporting, whatever you want to label a gangster rap that was easily accessible because of the hundred artists, whatever that percentage was, half of them had some sort of conscious rapping element to them. Like even if we want to look at somebody like a big daddy Kane, that wasn't his, what he was known for, that's not his forte, but he had right, those right. records. He was a five percenter and he would, lean on. he would, yeah. Yeah. And he infused that into his music, but that wasn't by default what he was known for, unlike, say, right. a public enemy or an ice cube. So, right there, we have a big difference. But more significantly, I think the problem is people that liked rap and rap was much smaller as an art form and much smaller as a business and much smaller as a movement, relatively speaking to what it is now, is that it hadn't really permeated movies just yet. 91 is where we see the explosion of New Jack City and Boys in the Hood, where we really take the street side of things. We had had House right. Party before. We right. had Crush Groove. We had had primarily... Yeah, before House Party, it was primarily like the dance element or the even graffiti with wild style element of hip hop culture. So that's a huge difference. Whereas today we have since 79 with Rapper's Delight and King Tim the Third, we have the explosion and we now have decades of rap uh, and people listening to it. So the challenge is now of those thousand artists, it's harder to find, say, my favorite of the 2010s moving into this decade is Vince Staples. So Vince Staples has a lot of very political work and social commentary, and he addresses, he has a song called Hands Up, if people haven't heard it. It was on his uh, Hell Can Wait EP, and that's a song about police mm -hmm. brutality, and that's that is what the song is about, and that's Vince Staples. Uh, YG, of course, had the F, F Donald Trump song, and 
you know, these are examples that of the type of music that was being made in the 90s that is so celebrated and the 80s that is so celebrated and people today I think in general act like it doesn't mm-hmm. exist and that's not true it's just that it's harder to find if there's a thousand artists versus a hundred the artists no, are, you continue the, yeah the artists are there and they're still making that music it's just if you have to get through a thousand songs instead of a hundred to find the the five or six you're looking for, they're there. It's, it's not concentrated anymore as it used to be. Right. It's more of a like volume dilution kind of thing. And, and, and that makes sense. I, I guess I was um, asking more from the, uh, why does it feel like the response back then was just to make a song about it? You know what I mean? And, and just kind of, I guess, what's different in society that makes artists respond to, or main, the well, biggest artists, let's say that, the biggest artists, not because you're right about in terms of there's plenty, like I only listen to a certain type of hip hop and I'm fulfilled. It's the best time in decades for the type of hip hop I listen to. So I'm happy. But um, <laughs> exactly. There's it's you could argue it's better than ever in a sense that literally any type of rap that you want to listen to there's tons of it that's out there that's being made now and for instance for unique access you guys have mentioned that i just interviewed oc recently for unique access entertainment and the videos on youtube and that's part one but you know oc is somebody that came out in earnest in 94 with his word life album and he's still putting out material now and i wanted to celebrate that because i've always liked respected admired and i'd covered him back when he was first coming out and he came out with organized confusion on fudge pudge so it's like he didn't disappear no if you go look at his catalog he's been putting out music so it's still there it's just back then there was it was so limited and we knew that if we missed UMTV raps or we missed Rap City, we weren't gonna see it on TV yeah. till the next day. You know, and that's totally different now. You could watch virtually any video in rap history on YouTube whenever you feel like it. Like that's a very different when you have to search for something and you have to crave it and desire it and seek it, it's much different than if it's there sitting waiting for you for free and you can get to it at your leisure. Like we had to seek it out growing up it's not the same thing it's not the same mentality and master ace had a album in 2001 which is yeah, one of my favorite yeah. yeah it's, yeah, Mickey's, it's one of mickey's favorite and, albums too oh yeah yeah so it came out in 2001 and the bottom line is he acknowledged identified and realized that rap was on its way to being disposable but now we see that with anything how many times just the three of us on this podcast have had, you know, 12 tabs open or 20 tabs open. Yeah. Oh, we'll get to that later. Whereas back in the day, if just to use Paris as an example, if uh, the devil made me do a video, we knew it was going to be on. We weren't going to, we were on drive everything to watch it. And that's, Correct. that's the difference. You know what I've, like, I've noticed that few- in, I've noticed that in the, um, my tolerance for long albums now. I can't stand a long album. If I if I go on your album, someone just dropped like a 20 song album. I can't remember. And you would have to be, I don't know, maybe Kendrick could keep my attention for 20, 
songs at this point in time, but there's only a handful of rappers. Whereas you looked for, you thought you got cheated if an album had 12 cuts. You're like, where's the rest of the songs? I need 16 <laughs> songs and right. four skits minimum, album. you know? <laughs> and now it's like, yeah. Yeah, I remember that that was something that was very frustrating to me when I, Nomadic yeah. finally came out because yeah, it was yeah, so short. Yeah. But it was great at the same time. So, you know, less is more when yeah, you yeah. want more. <laughs> I know some double albums that probably should have been a single albums. <laughs> most, most of them. Yeah. Most of them. Yeah, yeah, it's usually a bad sign when you see the double album coming out. Usually. So I wanted to ask you, you wrote a couple of these I'm the White Guy books. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about what what the origin was of uh, blending sort of your own story into your writing, because that's something I've done for a while now. And just the title, I'm the white guy. Um, what made you want to say that so, I guess, boldly or off the cuff right from the title? Well, it's because I'd done my first book, The History of Rap and Hip Hop, in 2006, and that was a textbook aimed at middle schools and middle school students. Mm -hmm. And so after I did that, I, you know, I was very excited and I got a lot of great feedback from it. Uh, Ice Cube in particular told me his son, which I imagine was Osei Jr., that we now know Mm -hmm. as an actor, that he had Mm -hmm. read it and loved it. And I'd given it to a bunch of artists and they all loved it. And then I didn't get another book deal and a few things had fallen through and it didn't work. And I was very disappointed and frustrated. And one time I'd gone to a Barnes and Noble because I was like, man, how come I'm not getting any traction with these books and rap books were coming out? So I was like, what's going on? And I just looked and I saw Britney Spears had a book and I was like, oh, it took me to look outside of rap to understand like it's about. celebrity as much as it is about writing so i was like you know i don't know britney spears i don't follow her career and you know i don't really know too too much about her but i was just like man how (laughs) she got a book and i don't and i'm a writer so i was like okay well if i could think of something that would make someone that doesn't know who i am because i never strove to be famous i never wanted that i never cared about it what could make somebody that doesn't know me want to read what i have to say if i'm writing a book and i thought about it and the thing i would always do because i didn't i wanted to have the career that i've ended up to have but i didn't know that i would so when i would go out and i would see when i would meet a jay-z or i would meet a snoop dogg or a chuck d or a schoolie d or Anybody that I loved, I idolized their work and them as a person. I tried to get a photo with them. And this is way (laughs) before that was popular. So I would, you know, come back from my travels, interviewing people or being at whatever event. And my friends in Maryland would always joke. They'd be like, oh, who's that? Who's that? Because they might not know all the producers or all the DJs or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, and you're the white guy. Ha ha. And they'd all be laughing at me. So I was like, oh, that's the name of my book or these series. I'm the white guy because my friends would kind of joke with me about that. Um, <laughs> I still get those same kind of jokes. Even from, I'm, a, I'm a professor at Ryder University. Even some of my white colleagues will make that joke. And, yeah. and I wonder, like, it, 
in 2020, like what is still so funny about a white person who's interested in invested in black culture? Um, I mean, certainly they're pretending white Americans right. haven't been from the start. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. You'd have to ask those those guys. <laughs> I, I don't know because to me, it's never. Uh, that's just who I am and what I like, and I've been, and what I love, and what I promote, support, celebrate, cherish, critique, analyze. That's ever since I was ten. I started doing it long before I was able to do it professionally. You know, I just I'll never forget. I was with on the basketball court with my friend Sean Craig and. We were listening to Saturday Night, the album by Schooly D, and I just remember when I was 12, and I just remember thinking, like, man, I wonder if Schooly's really <laughs> like he is on his records. I really want to meet him. I really want to hang out with him and talk to him. And and it wasn't like Sean, who's black, he didn't be like, oh, Sean, what you talking about, man? That's crazy. He was just <laughs> like, yeah, man, it would be cool. Da, da, da. And then um, literally fast forward 10 years later, uh Schoolie's my favorite rapper, and I'd uh, got to interview him over the phone, and I'd met him in New York. And then he, uh, I, I pitched. He was at the time DJing raves right. in Philadelphia, so uh, I, I pitched Vibe, doing a story on him, and they let me do it. And I called him, and I was like, uh, "Hey, man, I got to do the story." He's like, "Well, you still in Maryland?" And I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Oh man, just drive up." drive up yeah. to philly man we'll hang out all day so i got to go to his house i got nice. to hang out with him and i basically got there whatever at one one two o'clock in the afternoon and stayed till like four or five in the morning and drove back to my parents house and i was like literally 10 years after i had this goal or wish or dream schoolie invited me to his house and that was <laughs> like you know that was uh, pretty amazing literally, yeah, it was a dream come true, but that's what I wanted yeah. to do since I was 10. I just, and then to be able to do what I've done is phenomenal. And this is like who he, I am. He didn't, dis, he didn't disappoint you, I bet either. He's everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But again, I had met him uh, in New York at the right, CMJ right. Uh, conference and I had interviewed him. The first time I interviewed him was one of my favorite interviews ever. It was funny because yeah, he's a he's a character. Man. Yeah, I, when I I've been trying to interview him, I worked at Rap Sheet as a freelancer, and uh, my editor Billy Johnson Jr., who's now one of my best friends, he was he let me do a story on Schoolie because I wanted to interview him. So I've been I finally tracked how to get in touch with Schoolie down. And then the publicist just called me one day. It was during the summer, and I was in college. She was like, oh, Soren, you still want to interview Schoolie? And I was like, of course. She's like, oh, can you do it in like five minutes? Because he's available, <laughs> and he'll do it now. And I was like, I had literally, I think I just finished cutting my parents' grass or something. <laughs> and uh, I was like, sure. So I ended up talking to him for a, yeah, around wow. three hours or so. Uh you know, I didn't get a chance to prep or anything. You know, I just had to get my recorder and my notes and all that. And I just did it. And toward the end of the conversation, he was just like, man, it's really cool talking to you, man. Because most people that I've interviewed with don't really know much about me, but you know a lot. And, yeah. you know, I I was 10 years old when I first heard Schooly or around 10. 
And it was just crazy that fast forward to 10 years later that I was one of the people that right. knew the most about him that he'd ever talked to. And I was in college. So that would, that made me feel really good. And he said similar things to me over the years. And then in my book, the history of gangster rap for whoever has it. And if you don't have it, please get a copy. But Schooley gave me, uh, for those who know, he used to draw his albums, uh, covers yeah. for his, yeah. uh, sing Dope. for his singles and his albums. And so I asked him, I was like, oh, do you have any of that old stuff you never released? And then he gave me a never before published piece of art that I then put wow. in my book, The History of Gangster yeah, Rap. So okay, that was see, like I got to get a hard copy crazy. now that I know that. Um, that I, was, I, got the, I got the audible. <laughs> yeah, it was. A, yeah, yeah. It was amazing, though, man. Like my favorite rapper. And then mm -hmm. he's like giving me a book. And then if you go on my Instagram, uh, I went to Philly and hung out with him uh, when I went to Maryland for a book signing at Bowie, Maryland. When the book came out, because um, that's where my dad worked, and I spent yeah. a lot of time in Bowie growing up also. And then, uh, so I went to the Bowie Barnes and Noble and did a book signing there, and that was phenomenal. But then the next day, I drove up to Schooley in Philly. He gave me an amazing shout out for the book. I gave him a copy, and then. Um, you know, I just spent a day with him again, kind of like we did back in 95 or, or 97. But anyway, it's just, that's how I got into rap. And that's how I got so much uh, love for it. Because it yeah, was just since yeah, I was a little yeah. kid. I was going to ask the question I said you answered. I was going to ask, you know, your top tier gangster rappers, you know, maybe your top three or top five. But it sounds like, it sounds like Schooly might be number well, one. I think... Uh, yeah, he did. Well, I mean, he created it, and I go into great, I go into great detail yeah. about that in the history of gangster rap. And then, you know, I think somebody because of his success in other arenas, people forget Ice T, and Ice T is really the one that helped popularize it after Schooly created it and made a lot of waves. Ice T, you know, was a phenomenal writer, mm -hmm. a phenomenal storyteller. And has an amazing insight. And one of my favorite songs of his is not a big single or whatever, but it's called Squeeze the Trigger. Mm -hmm. It was included on yeah. the Ryan Pays album, his debut album. And that really breaks down, you know, the government's direct and indirect involvement in a lot of the societal ills that we have. And Ice-T mm -hmm. was doing that early on in the game. And then, of course... He had a distinguished career as a rapper with five gold or platinum albums in a row and then ended up having tremendous success as an actor in film and now with Law & Order SVU being the longest running black actor in television history on a show. It's just phenomenal that he got to start, you know, really broke through as yeah. he had been around before Gangster Rap, but yeah. he helped make it what it is. So he's somebody... And then, of course, we have the obvious, you know, NWA members that I love. But, you know, like, I think people need to really look at, like, the DJ Quicks and the Compton's Most Wanted for a lot of phenomenal music that they released and continue to today. Uh, the Chill and I were DMing earlier today from Compton's Most Wanted. Shout out mm -hmm. to The Chill. And then, uh, you know, somebody I think people really don't yeah. look at enough is The Game. As his career went on, he's a phenomenally consistent and excellent artist, especially mm -hmm. I did a book with him on the Red Album 
which I think a lot of people slept on, and then Jesus Peace and Doctor's Advocate. He hasn't 19, had a bad album. Nah, 1992 is a phenomenal album, one of his more recent ones. The game is, he's a top-tier artist, man. People yeah, really see Born with. the Rap had, had, had a few. Yeah, had yeah. a few on there. Yeah, he's not a, yeah, he's very, he's very, I think his antics sometimes um, overshadow his, 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 his talent. And, you know, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's that's bad. Yeah, and but I, for I, me, it's always been the music. And I think that's why. Yeah, I'm why. a music guy. I'm a music guy, too. You know, I, I, I'm not really invested in any of these guys as <laughs> individuals, really. But um, so I'm always been music. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right on game. Yes. And then, of course, like I was mentioning earlier, I don't. I know he doesn't refer to himself or look at himself as a gangster rapper, but Vince Staples raps about that. And yeah, he's yeah. phenomenal, especially my favorite three projects of his are Shine Cold Chain Volume 2, Hell Can Wait, and Summertime 06. So if you haven't heard those three and you want to hear a modern artist that is delivering music that you would think you could have heard in the in the 80s or 90s, he would be the guy, in my opinion. Now, that that that's interesting because and that gets to a... Um cool point i guess distinguishing reality rap from gangster rap uh vince staples not considering himself a gangster rap although he shouts crip <laughs> frequently in his in his music but i guess because of the the overall subject matter and well you know just the, the tone of the music doesn't feel like gangster rap whereas like schoolboy q could be more like well that's still that's a modern day gangster rapper well, I think it's. But, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, but technically, you would consider Vince Staples gangster rap. It's gangbang rap. Well, I think it's something that I do address in my book, The History of Gangster Rap. The artists themselves, and generally speaking, have never, yeah, they've never, <laughs> yeah. they've never endorsed or embraced that term. Uh, in fact, I have a section in the book where I talk to MC Ren, DJ Quick. Uh, CJ Mack, uh, Paris, and Cormega about that very thing, what they think of the term of it, of the term gangster rap, and then I talk about the origins of it coming from the first right. seemingly documented use of it was in an LA Times article by one of my mentors and editors, Robert Hilburn. Mm -hmm. So it was like created by the media and kind of ran with from there. But prior to that, if we go back and look at reality and we look at facts and we look at articles and we look at the rappers they call themselves street reporters they call themselves reality rap and vince staples in particular has said he doesn't call, consider himself gangster rapper because he's not glorifying gang banging because it's killed a lot of his friends and caused him and his circle a lot of pain right. and that that i think is one of the reasons why i wanted to write the book is to show this is not mindless rage that these artists are speaking on this is very much rooted in part of the evil underbelly of americana and the situations that are created within our society that the artists are reacting to correct the correct. artist the artist didn't create gangs the artist didn't create drugs the artist didn't create guns the artist didn't create any of this and neither did any of the people living in any of the communities that the artists come from yeah they're they're reacting to the atrocities that have been 
you know, they've been dealing with their lifetime, their parents' lifetime, their grandparents' lifetime. This is, again, as we talked about, centuries in the making. This is not an overnight phenomenon. Yeah, me and Mickey talk often about um, that distinction of reality rap versus gangster rap and just kind of the the gimmickiness of what, you know, is gangster rap. Um, And that, you know, really, you know, reality rap is really, you know, the more accurate uh, term for it. I guess similar to how Kwali and Most Def and those guys feel about conscious rap. Uh, You know what I mean? There's a lot of rejection for of that nobody term. likes the labels nobody right? wants labels because it wasn't you know it wasn't that it wasn't that before you know tribe called quest toured with the ghetto boys like it was just like you said because it was just rap so you booked all the five rap acts you put them on a tour you said hey go <laughs> it wasn't yeah. like no just the gangster rap or just the conscious rap or just these guys it was we all we had was rap <laughs> yeah and it, at least in maryland and i later realized this was also very different in general, most of my friends gravitated toward East Coast slash New York music, but in but they also liked a lot of the rest of rap. And yeah. I always liked it all relatively equally. And I didn't lean one way too hard as far as I like this or that more. But I realized as I went to Cincinnati for Xavier for college, and then once I moved to Los Angeles and had a little stint in Chicago and all these other places. And when I would travel to be with and interview the artists, I realized that was definitely not the case around the rest of the country, yeah. especially, especially when I go to New York or, you know, the South or different places is like much more regional. I knew there was regionalism and I knew that was a reality, but I didn't realize how much of a reality it was till I was actually in all the places that I grew up hearing about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got into um, West Coast stuff pretty early compared to, well, like my peer group, my friends, we were we got into it pretty early in contrast to like our, our other friends or other guys from Brooklyn. I was aided by one of my best friends moved to Indiana uh, like early in high school. So he would come back and forth, you know, so he came one summer, we sent him back with like the black sheep album. He left Scarface and that's how mm. we, you know, that's how we, that's how I first got introduced to Mr. Scarface solo. You know, we knew the ghetto boys with the solo project and then, you know, he would come back, we'd switch again, you know, he'd come back singing Compton's most wanted or MC breed or something. We're like, what are you talking about? And then <laughs> we would do, we, we do an exchange. So I was fortunate in that way, but yeah, I mean, there was the, in terms of the airwaves, especially anything, um, you know, if you weren't watching videos, but if you're just listening to the radio and something, it's nothing, nothing from the South, nothing from the West Coast at all. Yeah. And that created to the resentment that lingers till today yeah. with the regionalism, mainly of, I would argue, more than any, and by far, New York being very xenophobic compared to the rest of the country when it comes to embracing rap. And that's you know, unfortunately led to a lot of problems and continues till today. Which the irony of that is, is when you're in New York, New York rappers are complaining about not being able to get heard now. 
<laughs> so, yeah. right. even, in, even in the midst yeah. of that, it's like you can't hear a New York artist on the radio that's not Jay-Z. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's the, you know, when you, as we see in other ways, when you turn your back on a group of people and then those group of people end up having the power or the people behind them, then they're not really going to reach back because they don't need to. So a lot of a lot of people lay some of the New York um, decline on Fifty Cent because of you know all the tension he created with you know just going at everybody and they said you know they say like it was an atmosphere of like because it's so competitive no one's collaborating whereas you see like the the Southern artists particularly are always on each other's stuff they're always introducing the next kid who's coming up you know uh ti's jumping on songs or bringing young thug on you know they're always kind of bringing in the new crop and giving them the stamp um what what do, what do you say about that kind of the, the 50 blame thing i don't agree with that at all i mean he had lloyd banks he had tony yayo both of who are from new york and if they would have been more successful instead of one major artist from new york you would add three and then Unlike everybody else, 50 Cent, ironically, totally against or maybe in part of this argument, embraced Young Buck from the South, from Tennessee, and then you had, you know, Game, obviously. So 50 Cent was smart in the sense he looked at it as what rap could and should be, which is everybody working together. And that, I would imagine, is partially because Eminem from Detroit and Dr. Dre from California embracing him. And giving him that platform that nobody else did other than Columbia back in the day when he was pre his getting shot. Right. So I don't I don't buy that. I think that's an excuse. I think it's uh, New York artists do collaborate. When Busta Rhymes would do a song, he'd be on remixes and there'd be seven New York artists on a song. So I don't I think that's revisionist history in the sense that, nah, I think it's the music wasn't good. Is the fundamental problem <laughs> that that's that that'd be my number one. The music sucked for a, a long period of time. We lost we lost our post um, post boom bap. We couldn't find it. Yeah, we we abandoned the boom bap sound, and then we just we couldn't find it. And I don't think I mean we've now, um, you know, rest in peace, pop smoke. But that movement with the drill, it was New York was finally starting to kind of find a sound again. But yeah. um, I mean, even yeah. even look at Nicki Minaj, who's the most successful, or even Cardi B, but really Nicki Minaj to me. Yeah, uh, you know, she's the most successful New York artist since she came out, and Southern producers, Southern beats, yeah, went to Atlanta, uh, went Southern, to Atlanta, got put on by Southern rap, Southern label she signed to yeah. South, 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 South. Yeah. But she is a phenomenal rapper, and she is, you know. Of since she came out, she's one of the best rappers, but she sounds sonically her sound has nothing to do with a New York sound or distinctively New York sound. It's very much a hybrid of all these other things, primarily the South. So, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Yeah, do you think that sense of regional pride or regionalism will ever go away? I mean, there was the theory a few years ago that with the way we listen to music and find music shifting online. And we were seeing like a lot of international collaborations between producers and MCs. Do you think that's well, ever going away or is that just going to be there? 
I think, unfortunately, like the bigger problems we have in our country in the rap world, we have some of these same problems. The yeah. As I talk about in my book, The History of Gangster Rap, in 1989 on Do It Like a Geo, the ghetto boys were talking about the East Coast ain't playing my song. I want to know what the hell's going on. So in 89, this was an issue. It's 2020. This is still an issue. So the fact that Two Live Crew was ridiculed for years in the rap magazines as being whack artists or not being able to rap or all these things, uh, ghetto boys felt it. Clearly, NWA felt it. A lot of artists felt it, and not just from the West Coast, from Houston, from Miami, from Atlanta. That's why Andre 3000 famously said the South got something to say. It's because every region felt like the gatekeepers in New York were keeping them out, and they were. It wasn't like some fantasy. It was true. And that resentment, again, now that it's been taken over by the other regions, the South is such a big region, obviously with the heart beat and the pulse being Atlanta that you know you got Miami you got Atlanta you got Houston you got Memphis you got all these different places that are hubs of the music that don't need anyone's endorsement because now if Travis Scott comes out and he's huge he don't need anybody he can just do it and it doesn't matter that he's from the south you know it's like okay you know people can find him and you don't need, like I was saying earlier, you don't need to wait for Rap City or your MTV Raps to watch a Travis Scott video or to listen to him on Spotify. You can just do it. Yeah. And clearly, the other thing about all of this, man, is a popularity contest. Everything in entertainment is popularity. So clearly, the people like and listen to what they like and listen to. Right. And if it's not you then they don't like you. <laughs> it's period. I mean, I think the biggest difference, I would say in terms of of, of that, uh, to answer your question, Mickey, from my perspective, is that the shift, well, it used to be a both and thing. So it used to be kind of like, um, like Soren mentioned, gatekeepers and other New York artists um, at times kind of you know hating or blocking and stuff like that but it was really the fans at, by way of the structure so the publications you know the labels the radio who had like the bias i know you know i had a bias like we all like i ain't listening to that you know what i'm saying like college got me again into like bone thug i discovered common and why well, knew common was around it also helped that Resurrection was a much better album than the first one. So I can't I can't blame that on Common. I mean, I blame that on Common. <laughs> but I think now there's no regionalism from the fans. Nah, that's not true. Out in LA, it's definitely well, again, now we're dealing with different generations. Well, I guess I meant there's... in terms of like New York gets a, bears a lot of the blunt of that and they deserve it. But I mean, I don't think the New York fan for me right now is not a regional fan because they're listening to everything. Right. But that takes, that's going to take a time of a generational shift of, you know, people liking people because they like it. And I think now that everything is consumed online and initially and primarily that that leads to somebody 
now that has 20 or 30,000 fans, they could have a huge successful career because they can tour and perform in front of a thousand people in 30 cities and be fine and have, and make a comfortable living doing that. And they don't need to be on the radio. They don't need to have a huge budget because they've developed that on their own. And if they can go to those 30 cities because they got 30,000 fans spread out through 30 cities, then they're good. And the playlist is much more important than the radio these days. Anyway, (laughs) Um, your, your Spotify playlist, your Apple music title curated playlists. Those are really what's, you know, kind of measuring, you know, like what Funk Master Flex would do with a record at one time is kind of like your new music playlist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So Soren, what would you say that a white person who enjoys listening to hip hop, what should be step one as far as responding to the death of George Floyd, these mass protests around the country? I mean, is there there a place to start for people who may love hip hop, but not know much about the surrounding issues in the societal context? Well, you got to first look at yourself. Do you have any friends who are not white? And Mm -hmm. to me, that's a big first step. And if you don't, it's 2020. That to me seems odd, strange, unfathomable. So if you don't, not to say you got to force yourself to have right. we don't, friends we don't who are go, people of color. We don't color. want you to go out and get you some, <clears throat> get you some black friends. <laughs> but, but, and maybe you live in an isolated yeah. area where you're, you're not around that. But if you can't, if you can't or don't have access to, quote, to be around black people, then what about Hispanic people or Native Americans or Asians? The main thing is that that to me is the fundamental thing. We have to look at who's in our circle. And I'm fortunate that my circle includes people of a lot of different backgrounds as far as race. And that's been the way I've been since I was born, just by nature of where I grew up, but then by nature of my choices of who I chose to spend time with and affiliate myself with. And I think if more people were in a similar mindset of you know, not looking at somebody and saying they're different, but what do we have in common? That to me is far more valuable because if you like Pop Smoke or you like Vince Staples or you like Kendrick Lamar or you like whoever, J.I.D.K. that's out now, then you automatically have something in common with this other person, regardless of their race. And that's where you can, you know, start to have a relationship. And I think that's the fundamental thing is that because our societies and the world is so driven on difference that once we look at the similarities we have and the same passions and the same loves that we have for some of the same things, well, wait a minute, you know, this dude is just like me. He's like, we like A, B, and C. And that's to me the starting point. It's not like, oh, you got to treat me a certain way because of my race or this or that. It's like, no. You should do that to everybody. And I'm fortunate that my parents explained that and instilled that in me since I was basically born. So I didn't have to come to that realization later in life. That was what I was born into. And I think if more people had that, 
society would be a much better place. So I think that's the first step. It's not to try to force a mentality or force something on it is like, look at these commonalities that we have, whether that's a sports thing you like, a music thing you like, a movie, a book, a philosophy, art, a girl. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a shift in your perception from seeing the differences to seeing the similarities and starting from, from that point. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of what we, a lot of what we're doing is the opposite. Now we talked about that kind of in the last podcast of like, we're just finding yeah. the difference out of anything. It's like, we could have 10 things in common and we're going to fight on the 11th difference. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. You say that. Cause uh, there was a publicist that uh, I used to talk to on a regular basis and I remember, and it was probably 99 or so she called me and she was uh, so upset that we didn't, I didn't like this one album she liked <laughs> and it wasn't even an artist she repped. And I was like, look, we like literally, we almost never disagree, but why are you, why do you care that I don't like this album? Like, it doesn't matter to me. And I don't care that you don't like it. It's your opinion. Like who cares? She was like, I just don't understand. I just don't see. And I was like, well, I'm sorry. You know, I just don't, you know? And that was just so odd to me. It was like, I'm not saying everybody's got to like agree on everything and everybody's got to be friendly every time, but it's like, yo, we're supposed to celebrate. That's the the promise and what America theoretically stands for is we're supposed to celebrate our diversity rather than battle right. against it. And that to me is another key step, like celebrate our diversity, celebrate like just making it up. If I like Puma and you like Adidas, that doesn't mean I hate you. Like, so what? Like, okay, wear Adidas. Like I like Puma or I like Nike or I like whatever. It doesn't matter. Like why, why do I care? (laughs) Like, you know, maybe you try on a pair of Adidas. Maybe you like them. You know, I don't know. It's just, the whole thing is just ridiculous to me. No, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And you know, there's been such an advantage over the years to Americans remaining pretty separate. So that's the real advantage of the place you grew up and the way you grew up. I mean, it sounds like you you were born into a diverse community and went to school in diverse communities, and diverse schools. And a lot of Americans oh, don't get that. You they know, went, schools, they, they went, public schools in particular. They very went to great lengths today. to um, make it so. I mean, even from how they built the highways yeah. and certain, well, you know, even in New York, if you look at the subway yeah. system, it's... It's no, it's not a lot of crisscrossing. It's you know, it's, 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 <laughs> we don't right. want you going from here to here. Look at, <laughs> but look at uh, you know, the irony of a lot of this is America theoretically was founded. There's so many ironies in the founding of America. Look at it, like we are the outcasts. We are the people that, speaking of white people, the white people in America were the people England did right. not want. Let's start with that. And then clearly we have this huge influx of slaves. Those are also people that were stolen from their home. So uh, we're starting from a place of ripped from where we're from, speaking of slaves, and we're speaking of people that were not wanted where they were from, from religious persecution, from economic persecution, from philosophical persecution, all these things. And then on top of that, we have the blessing and the curse of being not connected to uh, 
great amounts of other established civilizations other than right. the Native Americans. So when we have Europe and we have Africa and we have Asia, these are places thousands that have been around for of, yeah. thousands of years. And America, other than the Native Americans, which had a, by comparison to what uh, the European settlers brought, they had their right. own system set up, but, and they were thriving in their own way. And then we came and by and large destroyed that. So we are an isolated country because of the oceans. The Pacific Ocean is the biggest right. thing on the planet. And that separates us as a country from basically everything else. And then we have the Atlantic Ocean on the other side. And then, you know, it's just America's, one of America's biggest strengths militarily is that it's not right. easy to get here. And in Europe, it's very easy. In Africa, it's very easy. In Asia, it's very easy. And even in South America, it's very easy. Here, there wasn't uh, that proximity to other countries that the rest of the world had right. at the time. Egypt had been thriving for, cent for thousands of years. That's Egypt. That's just one place. Then we have Rome. We got all these other cities that were thriving for right. thousand years. So we, we also have a huge landmass under one. You know, where if, if these were uh, countries, Texas is a country. Yeah, California. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he's a country. Alaska. It may be headed that way. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. How about that? <laughs> cool. This was a great conversation, and um, I, I want to thank you for um, taking the time. Very, you know, insightful, and and, and you know, I, I wanted to tell you too that I I learned something. The first wait, couple chapters, I learned. I didn't know how far King T went back. I knew he went back pretty far. I didn't know he went all the way back to like Mixmaster Spade in the Compton Posse. Yes, yeah, it's oh, not yeah. great. well, I. Speaking to that point, I just put up a video yesterday on my Unique Access Entertainment YouTube channel where we, my friend Amir Rahimi and I celebrate Act a Fool, King T's first album, and we pick our three best songs on it. And King T is one of the Absolutely. most underappreciated, undervalued Absolutely. artists. So everybody, please go watch that video and let me know what you think. And, you know, King T is a phenomenal dude, so I'm glad you picked up on that. And he also has one of my favorite uh, album covers with the trifling album, the orange <laughs> one, because I love orange. So I was very excited when he yeah, put that Yeah, we were big out. that... Uh... Yeah, I came to him kind of backwards. I discovered him through the alcoholics uh, down the road. Like I'd heard King T's name, but never really gotten into his music until I, I heard I, him on the alcoholics. I first heard I him back. on either... Uh, oh, man. What was that song? Grand Piano, I think. And... Uh, Okay. Yeah, they play like oh, a funky like piano. A piano. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I was getting grand. Yeah. Um, I was getting that no, uh, NWA uh, song grand finale and <laughs> funky piano mixed up. But um, gotcha. yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard them, and then the um, the Molly Moore remix of at your own risk. That was that was my that was my joint. Yeah, right. Well, funny thing I always had to tell my friends in Maryland was uh, the remix for at your own risk came out and then BET it used did. it for yeah, Rap City. Exactly, it wasn't the other exactly. way around. <laughs> exactly. And they were like, really? I was like, no, no, look, yeah. this, this song has been out. You guys are just, you didn't listen to yeah. King T, but you should be. And then they're like, oh man, this guy's great. 
yeah. Yes, well, awesome, man. Um, and you want you need to plug anything? Anything upcoming? Yeah, I would just please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Unique Access Entertainment. I would also uh, look at my books on Amazon.com. I've got 15 books out, and then I got one, you know, coming out in October. I'm very excited about uh, Gucci Man. It's called oh, the Gucci Man Guide to Greatness. Uh, we can't big. get into that yet, but at least it's it's available for pre-sale now. Hopefully, I can come back and talk to you guys yeah, well, later. You're you're invited to come back. I was gonna say, just let us know. Absolutely, reach out when um when when it's pub time. <laughs> yep, but uh, you guys can pre-order that. Let's get it to number one. But uh, yeah, just do that. And I got unique access shirts. If you guys like the channel, you can get them at bigherc.com. B i g h e r c and then you know just i would just say listen and love rap like i do then you'll love and love enjoying my interviews man because i got a wide range of people on there i got like you uh digs had mentioned i got jay prince on there i got mc ren on there i got talib kwali on there i got dana dane on there i got nice and smooth i got mc8 i got mac 10 g perico oc uh, Slink Johnson, Black Jesus, Whoa. and I did a bunch of stuff, and Amir Rahimi and I. So, I got a lot of people on there, man. It's just, uh, you know, I'm I'm very blessed and very fortunate and appreciative to have the career that I do, and I'm trying to always progress and push harder and keep going to the next level every time. So, yeah, any support on those, and you can follow me at Soren Baker, just my name at S O R E N B A K E R. And there it is. I appreciate you guys. Oh uh, no, absolutely, man. Thanks for hanging out. Oh, thanks so much for joining. For sure. Us. You wanna yeah. you wanna take us out of here, Mickey? Go for it. So this was a guest in the house podcast with our guest today, Soren Baker. Yes, yes. I'm Mickey Hess, and this is my co-host Trom Diggs. Trom Diggs, David Shanks. We out. We go to war with you. All my warriors, all my POWs, those who died in the struggle. Man, we warriors, we not soldiers. Soldiers take their orders from man. We take our orders from the most high. So we warriors. We live by the warrior code. Stand tall, y'all.